today we're reading from Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from within and defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Sandy, for reading that for us. Well, good evening, Disciples Church. It is good to see you. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mosher. It's my, um, it's my sincere privilege uh, to be able to open up the word with you and for you this evening. And so turn in your Bibles if you're not there already. This evening we're looking at Mark 7, the passage that Sandy just read for us. And if you'll notice, there's a lot of correlation between uh, the passage that Dave preached through, the first half of uh, Mark chapter 7 last week, and the text that we're looking at this evening. In fact, if you were to read verses 1 through 23, what you would find is that this is the longest recorded portion of conflict in the book of Mark. This is a diatribe, it's a lengthy conversation, it's a recording of really severe differences between Jesus and ultimately what he held to and what he taught and who he claimed he was and the Pharisees and the scribes that had come out to greet him and ultimately to challenge him and the disciples on their view of the law and more than that really on their view of different traditional teachings that they held to. And anytime we see some sort of conflict like this or something that stands out in a book, it's worth taking note because what seems obscure to our modern Western American mindset is actually incredibly relevant. We look at a passage like this and our presumption is that it really only applies to observant Jews. Why are we talking about Jewish traditions and ceremonial washings and acceptable foods and all of these different things that's, that are talked about in Mark chapter 7? Why are we, as modern-day Christians, 2,000 years removed from this conversation, why are we even taking the time to discuss it? And we'll find that out as we go along, but I think what you'll find is that it's very relevant for us. So last week, what we talked about, the Pharisees had come to confront Jesus specifically about the fact that that the disciples had uh, had not observed the traditional washings that observant Jews would have observed uh, before they began eating. And we talked about the idea that that brought up all kinds of problems, problems related to the elevation of tradition. That anytime you take tradition, a man-made philosophy, and elevate it over the Word of God, you've created problems. And now, having established the source of all authority, which is the Word of God itself, applied to our hearts through the Spirit of God, now Jesus begins to demonstrate His own authority over tradition, over the law, and He begins to define for the people and for us, what is it that makes you pure or defiled? 
And even though those are both kind of strange words to a modern ear, at least in this context of spirituality, I would ask you to consider the question, when you think about what it is to be pure, or when you think about about what it is to be defiled, to be righteous or unrighteous, to use biblical terminology, what is it that you first think about? Where does your mind go when you consider those things? What is it that you value when it comes to spiritual purity? And ultimately, what does that reveal to you about who God is and who He's made you to be? because that's the conversation that Jesus is going to have in this text. And so look, if you would, beginning in verse 14, here's what he says. And he, that is Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. I just want to stop there for one moment because this language is somewhat unusual for Jesus. This is very commanding language. It's actually reminiscent of Old Testament prophets. He's taking on this mantle here where he's actually functioning as a prophet and he's chiding the scribes and the Pharisees and ultimately the disciples that were there to listen as well. And he says, I want you to understand what I'm saying. You need to listen because this is important. And we likewise should take that same instruction. Verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. See, Jesus actually, in some sense or another, agreed with the Pharisees when it came to their sense that humanity was defiled and in need of cleansing. The Pharisees understood that humanity was defiled and broken. They understood that there was some sort of a need for reconciliation with God. But where they disagreed with Jesus was on the source of that defilement and on the solution to that problem. See, Jesus is saying something that would have been startling to a first century audience. He says the problem is not on the outside of you trying to work its way in. The problem is on the inside of you and it works its way out. He says the problem ultimately for you and for these people was not food, And it wasn't their observances. It wasn't what they ate or what they observed or what they didn't eat or what they didn't observe that made them a sinner. What he says is your heart inherently is what declares that you are a sinner. And this was a revolutionary idea to the listeners. Because not only had they been following the instruction to them that had been given by God to observe particular dietary restrictions and customs that were ultimately intended to distinguish them from their non-believing neighbors in the countries that surrounded them, but they had also been laboring, laboring under a heavy yoke of these pharisaical traditions for generations, for centuries. It was so commonplace, these observances and these traditions were such a part of their life that they were virtually indistinguishable from the commanded Word of God in their mind. And all of these traditions were focused on external conformity as a means to demonstrate their devotion and earn their acceptance before God. And in this passage, Jesus is ultimately undermining the foundation for not only the Judaic system that had been put into place by the Pharisees, but all systems of religion that are man-made. And that's not necessarily immediately obvious to us, but when you look at these verses, you can't come away with any other perspective. That Jesus is saying here, not only to the Jews of the day, but he would say it in the very same way to Muslims and to Buddhists and to any other variety of religion around the world, what he's saying to them is you have the idea backward in your mind. The problem is not outside of you. 
The problem is not, not that if you eat these things or participate in these particular observances or, or avoid these particular behaviors that somehow you have dirtied yourself by your participation or lack thereof in these things. The problem ultimately is you. And so for the Jews that thought that their right standing before God was directly correlated to their ability to observe the law, he said, you've missed it. To the Muslims who hold the strict dietary restrictions and social ordinances, he says, you've missed it. To Buddhists who emphasize spirituality above all else and focus deeply on the internal but, but ultimately are motivated by a system driven by karma, the idea that you'll get back what you give. He says, you've missed it. And to the various twists on Christianity, Mormons who've added a book to our Bible, claiming its inspiration, to the Jehovah's Witness who who turn and twist Scripture to make it say something that is altogether different than what it says In each and every circumstance with all of these various religions, Jesus is saying you've missed the problem. The problem ultimately is you. Look what he says in verse 17. And when he had entered the house, he's left now this larger gathering of people. His disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? So when Jesus said to the people, nothing outside defiles you, but things within you are what ultimately defiles you, the disciples did not understand. These people who had been around Jesus, who had heard his teaching, who had seen the miracles, who knew that this man claimed to be God and had even given testament to some of the amazing, miraculous things that he did, these men who were standing around observing and witnessing and hearing all of these things did not understand what it was that Jesus had just said. This thing that to us as modern-day Christians seems so on the surface obvious to us, they didn't get. Why? Because they were so influenced by their culture that they had no paradigm through which to understand Jesus' words. And to paraphrase David Foster Wallace, he said, it's like approaching a fish and asking, how's the water today? And the response comes back from the fish, what water? When you are surrounded on all sides, when the world is pressing in on all sides, when you are constantly inundated with worldly philosophies and messages, whether they are religious in the case of these observant Jews or irreligious in the case of the world in which we live, when you are pressed in at all times, it is amazing how often the philosophies of this world take root in our life, that they affect not only the way that we live and the things that we value, but they affect our very view of God himself. It is so easy for those mindsets to take hold, and you see in Jesus' response this very direct challenge and correction to the disciples. In our Bibles, it's translated, if you have the ESV uh, version rather, it's translated, then are you also without understanding? And I think that translation is actually very soft. Because if you read it in various other translations or look at the original text, what Jesus actually says is, are you so dull? Are you, are you being willfully ignorant of the things that I'm saying to you? In other words, Jesus is saying you should understand better. You've been exposed to the kingdom through me. Your mind should be more attuned 
And then he goes on to say this, do you not see, verse 18, that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. In other words, the food that the Pharisees were so worried about eating isn't what makes you a sinner. And follow this logic. Conversely, abstaining from those foods did not make you righteous. Why? Because the food, to use Jesus' language, ultimately wasn't entering your heart. And when he uses the word heart there, he's talking about the seat of the human will, the emotions, the conscience, what makes you, you, your very soul, everything that defines you as being different from an animal, everything that indicates that you were created by a superior being, everything that indicates that God himself breathed life into you. He said everything about who you are is wrapped up in that idea of the heart, and he says mere food cannot defile who you really are because food doesn't enter the heart, it enters the stomach and is expelled. And once again, the ESV translates this very generously for us. Some of your translations say it ultimately ends up in the latrine. It ends up in the bathroom to be a little crasser. But this is the language that Jesus himself uses. He's saying, what are you worried about food for? You've missed it. You've missed ultimately why these instructions were even given. And then notice it says, Jesus declared, all food clean. And we'll come back to that idea, but Jesus in this moment declares all food clean and declared all human hearts unclean. This was directly opposite to what the Pharisees had presumed. And look at the response then in verse 20. And Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So Jesus kind of gives us a heading for all of these sins that he's going to list. And he gives that heading by saying this. He says, from the heart come evil thoughts. That's a junk drawer idea. He's saying everything evil that you can imagine, everything broken that you see in the world, all of the twisted nature of what we see around us, every evil thought you've had, it doesn't come from the external. It comes from your heart. That's the category that we're talking about, these internal sins that are born out in external actions. And what Jesus is saying is you are not primarily a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner gives birth to a theological idea that's probably familiar. You've certainly heard us mention it here before, but it's the idea that we are sinners by nature and by choice. And when we say we're sinners by nature, what we mean is ultimately what David wrote in Psalm 51 verse 5 when he said, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, that you were conceived in iniquity. That from the very moment that God sparked life into you, you were tainted by sin. That what Adam and Eve did in the garden affected everything and everyone who has ever lived. But as if that wasn't enough, not only are you a sinner by nature, but you're also a sinner by choice, meaning you give evidence of your sinful heart all day, every day. through the things that we say and the way that we act and the thoughts that run through our mind, we are constantly giving evidence 
of the reality of what is in our heart as human beings, which is that we are a sinful and broken people. And Jesus goes so far as to give 12 different examples of what comes out of the heart of the man. And I'm only gonna address one of them in depth, but I want you to notice the interesting nature in which this is broken up. So he says, first of all, there are all these evil thoughts. There's all of these evil things that come from your heart. And then the first six terms that he give specifically denote sinful acts. So sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery, coveting and wickedness. And the second group of six terms addresses sinful attitudes. So attitudes of the heart, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. But I want you to notice where he starts because I think it is a perfect segue into how we understand these distinctions between Old Testament law and the New Covenant because he starts by mentioning sexual immorality. And I wanna stop and talk about that briefly and as honestly and yet as discreetly as I'm able. The word that's translated here as sexual immorality comes from the Greek word porneia. Porneia is the word from which we get the word pornography. It's the, word, it's the uh, Greek root word from which we get the word fornication. It's a juncture term for all kinds of sexual sin. And the way that the Bible is going to go on and define that all throughout Scripture, but explicitly in 1 Corinthians 5 and in Romans chapter 1, is it's going to define that sexual immorality as any practice that is outside of the bonds of marriage between a natural-born man and a natural-born woman. And so it's interesting that Jesus chooses to address this during this broader conversation about righteousness and defilement. Because one of the immediate objections to Christianity that you will hear from people who do not know Jesus is you'll hear people say, okay, Christian, so you claim that same-sex relationships and premarital relationships are sin or that transgenderism is an affront to God because of what Scripture says, but here are all of these dietary restrictions and all of these ceremonial laws, and you've just decided that those things are no longer relevant. And of course, then the charge is made that you're a hypocrite. But for the Christian, our ultimate rule for our faith and practice is Scripture itself. And what you find Jesus doing here in this moment is redefining and clarifying what is important for us. So he says, look, these Old Testament cleanliness laws were, were meant to demonstrate that the people of God were a called out group, that they were different. These external observances that, in which they were to partake was to indicate that there was something different about them internally, that they were set apart to God. But your mere observance of the cleanliness laws is never what made you clean. This is what Paul goes on to say in his epistles when he says, ultimately, the circumcision in which you participated, speaking to Jewish men who participated in that act, was an indication of what was supposed to be happening in your heart. But if you think that by virtue of your circumcision, somehow you become holy, all you are is a mutilator of the flesh. You've missed the point of the act. What determines your cleanliness is what God has decreed about you. And that, in turn, determines the posture of your heart and the actions that flow from them. And in giving us this brief list, Jesus is reiterating some of those things that God is declaring important. So when we as Christians declare the sacred, beautiful nature of a physical relationship between a husband and a wife, we are not doing that from an arrogant heart that pretends that we are perfectly moral when it comes to our sexuality. 
No, far from it. All of us, if we're honest, can point to thoughts and to attitudes and to actions regarding sex that prove our own sinfulness. In other words, we are not declaring a moral law just for others, just for those outside the church. Rather, we are recognizing through those declarations God's intention and design for all mankind and the various and sundry ways that we abuse his perfect intention. And then as Jesus continues with this list, he gives us five other actions, these external demonstrations that also show the wickedness of the heart. And notice the list because these are extremely relevant for for the world in which we live. He says theft, murder, adultery, coveting, and wickedness. As we look at the chaos around us, and it is chaos, as we see people who commit acts of arson and violence and theft against others, the world around us is very quick to offer explanations or excuses for that behavior. And if you've been paying attention to the news, undoubtedly you've heard those explanations and those excuses. And so some of those, some people approach it from the idea of saying, well, these are just people that are simply responding out of frustration due to mistreatment or lack of opportunity. Or others will say, well, these are just folks who are reacting in a violent way because they've never had a good example in their life. And so don't misunderstand me. While it is certain that good examples and proper influences curb the excesses of our behavior, Jesus explicitly teaches in this passage that the true motivation behind everything from violent and chaotic behavior to wickedness and sexual promiscuity is the unfettered, sinful heart of humanity. In other words, if you want to know what the biggest problem in the world is, it's you. That you could go to the farthest reaches of this planet away from everyone else and there would still be sin. Why? Because you're there. That ultimately the excesses that play themselves out in all kinds of ways, culturally and nationally and locally, are just expressions of what's going on in the heart of man. So whatever you think the problem is and whoever you think is to blame, the ultimate problem that we face, the problem underneath the problem is the sinful heart of humanity. And the only true and lasting solution is one that addresses that root of the issue. So understand, social programs and education, while perhaps offering particular benefits, cannot alleviate the depravity of the human heart. We need a holistic answer. Why? Because of what Jesus is just about to say. Because the problem is not merely external. Now he mentions the attitudes, deceit, and sensuality, and envy, and slander, and pride, and foolishness. And so here's what he's saying. Even to the extent that you're able to curb behavior to avoid the particular actions that you might otherwise be inclined to do, Jesus is saying there is still an attitude of the heart, a thought process of the mind, a stirring of your will that reveals the very state of your soul. This is the example that Jesus gives when he speaks to the Pharisees, an example that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago. When in speaking to them, he says, you've heard it said that if you murder a man, you violated the law, and that is true. But do you understand that if you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed murder against them internally? But the problems that we have are not merely external, but back to Jesus' point, they are internal. 
It's what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said when he said the line between good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between parties, but right through every human heart. This is the part of who you are as a human being that can only be addressed by spiritual means. So let me illustrate this as best I can. This week I came across um, an interview show um, and, and the, the gentleman, the host who's, who's doing this interview podcast um, talks to influential people from all walks of life and all kinds of different industries and entertainment, people that are famous for a variety of reasons. And he interviews them and kind of asks about their life and digs underneath the surface a little bit. And he has a unique ability to kind of dig into people's motivations and into their heart. And so one of the guests that he had on this week was, was Miley Cyrus. So some of you know Miley Cyrus is the child star who kind of made it big uh, on Disney. She had a mega successful show. She's incredibly prominent and incredibly wealthy because of that. And now she's kind of made her way into, into her adulthood. I think she's 20 or seven, 27 or 28 years old. And now she has all kind of prominence and wealth and influence as a pop singer. Also, she's the daughter of Billy Ray Cyrus. Just throwing that in, okay, for some point of reference for other people. And what was interesting is as she's on this show, she started to talk about some of the struggles that she had growing up as a child star, growing up as a child of someone famous, someone who was on the national stage. She was friends with famous people. She didn't feel like she could relate to other children that were her age. And so she talked about some of the different strains and challenges that that had presented in her life. And so she was talking about the struggles that she had and how ultimately a lot of those struggles led her to to try to find her peace and to find her hope in in drugs and in alcohol and in relationships. And and she's participated in all of those things in very public ways. And so she talked about life in the limelight and how, how it actually has looked for her. And so as she's talking about all these various ways that she's broken and that she's messed up and that she's struggling and all these sorts of things, she talked about one particular psychiatrist she'd met who she thought was particularly helpful to her. I mean, she had nothing but just phenomenal things to say about this therapist. And so she said, he's played an amazing role in my life. He's an amazing therapist. He's helped me overcome all kinds of issues from self-esteem and relational issues to anxiety and depression. He helps me with all these things. And I'm such a better person for having been under his treatment. But then she said something that was so striking. She began to admit that in moments of her life where she isn't busy, when she has moments where life is not constantly pressing in on her and where she doesn't have something constantly going on, where she doesn't have surface issues that need to be addressed, that the conversation she constantly comes back to with her therapist is her deep-seated underlying guilt. And she was unable to put into words why it was that she felt guilty and what it was about her or things that she'd done or who she was that led her to these feelings of guilt But she said, I have all these feelings of guilt that I can't explain and I can't move past. And every time there's not something else more on the surface that needs to be dealt with, she says, I talk to my therapist and my therapist says, we've got to address this guilt. We've got to address it. We've got to figure this out. And so she talked about this struggle that this created in her. She's She's trying to express in this very same interview why she thinks she's a good person. And so she had all kinds of reasons why she feels like she's a good person. And she said, look, I've rescued all kinds of animals that otherwise would have been destroyed. I've rescued all kinds of animals that have been mistreated and abused. I've helped causes that dealt with animal cruelty. This is obviously something that was, was very important to her. And you could almost hear the wheels turning in her mind. 
as she tried to talk herself into the idea that she really is a good person by virtue of those things, but she still carries the guilt. And in a surprising way, at least to me, Miley Cyrus inadvertently stumbled on the same issue that Martin Luther did. Martin Luther wrote, admitting and and confessing how it ultimately was that he came to know the Lord. He said, I went to confession frequently and I performed all of the assigned penances faithfully. Nevertheless, my conscience could never achieve serenity. And what Luther was saying is, I'm confessing faithfully, but I cannot find freedom. I don't feel freedom from guilt. I don't feel freedom from obligation. I don't feel the freedom for the things that I've done in my life that I know are wrong. There's underlying guilt that I can't even put my finger on. Why in the world can't I get past this? And the reason he couldn't is because ultimately he was practically living under the old covenant. He was trying to use confession as a means of sacrifice. And in the very same way, some 500 years later, here's this 28-year-old pop star doing the very same thing. I'm going to confess to my therapist. I'm going to get all of these issues on the table, and maybe, just maybe, I'll be able to get past it. And her therapist, apart from all the benefits that he's provided, could not provide freedom from guilt. And all I could think as I listened to her talk was, she is misunderstanding the exact same concept as the Pharisees misunderstood in this verse. That she was looking to something outside of God himself to accomplish for her spiritually what only he could accomplish. I'm sure if you were to ask her, she by no means would consider herself a legalist. She hadn't memorized the first five books of the law. She hadn't observed Sabbath or dietary laws. She doesn't even believe in God. She has no religious mooring, but here's, here's where there's commonality. She had constructed for herself a set of moral principles. She had determined in her own mind what made someone a good person or a bad person. And despite her very best attempts to live according to that standard, when she was alone with her thoughts, she found herself dealing with guilt. Why? Because even if you didn't believe in a God, and even if you didn't believe in morality, if we just asked you to write down on a blank slate what it is that makes someone righteous, what makes them moral, what makes them a good person, forget about God for a minute, just if you had to define what makes someone righteous or good apart from who God is, what would be on that list for you? Because here's the truth of the matter. If we were able to follow you around all day, every day, and hear the words that come out of your mouth, if we were somehow able to see into your mind to to picture the thoughts that are going through your head, if we were able to observe you when no one else is around, the truth of the matter is, regardless of what the moral structure is that you have created, even you wouldn't be able to live up to it. Because in the words of Jesus, in the same way that you are not defiled by what's on the outside, you cannot be made clean by what's on the outside. And no amount of of self-imposed right behavior can alleviate the guilt of a soul that does not submit to God. So get this. This is the same place that you and I are tempted 
to live. Whether or not you know Christ in this room, this is the place we're tempted to live. And we may assume that we're living as free people because we're not like these foolish Pharisees trying to prove our righteousness through ceremonial observances. But how often are we tempted to indulge in the very same self-salvation project where we begin to think, well, I'm a pretty good person and I'm kind to my neighbors and I take care of my yard and I provide for my family and I work hard at my job and I pay my taxes and I vote. I attend church and I give to good causes. And listen, while all of those things are good and right, if you're depending on them to provide your right standing from, and your freedom from guilt, you are trying to find an external solution to an internal problem. So the question then obviously is this. Well, if our biggest problem is internal with a sinful heart, then what's the solution? And what's funny is if you read through this text, you don't find an explicit solution given. But I want, you to, point, I want to point you to a verse that's easy to skip past. Look, look beginning in verse 18. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Now look at these next words because they're important. Thus he declared all foods clean. Now here's, here's why that's striking because you've got to look at this in context. We need to understand the profound nature of Jesus' declaration in this moment. And the reason it's in parentheses is because this is Mark kind of adding in his own thought about what Jesus was doing in this moment. This is Mark relating the story that he inevitably heard from Peter. And if you remember Peter's life, I think it's in Acts chapter 10, Peter has this one particular vision where, where a blanket is dropped from heaven and there's all kinds of animals in it. These were animals that the Jews would have considered unclean. And a voice comes from God saying, you are to eat of these animals. And his response is, I can't eat of them. They're not clean. And God's response is, do not call unclean what I have made clean. For millennia, the people of God had been observing cleanliness laws as a means of demonstrating their devotion to God and their hope in Him alone. And over time, people began to assign moral value to the food itself. They misconstrued the heart behind the observance and, and they focused on the mere formality itself. And in one statement in this passage, Jesus overrules the very instruction itself. And since God initiated the cleanliness laws, only God could withdraw them. In other words, by making this statement, Jesus was asserting his own deity. Jesus declares all food clean in this moment. And that's striking in and of itself. I mean, just to put that in perspective, under the old covenant law, pigs were considered unclean and could not be eaten. Beef and dairy could not be combined. But from this declaration of Jesus, we get to enjoy the bacon cheeseburger. Amen? Amen. But much more than that, Jesus in this text is declaring something much greater. That everything that the cleanliness laws pointed to found their completion in him. He was saying, you no longer need the cleanliness laws because now you have me. 
Everything those cleanliness laws pointed to found their completion in me. All of the law of the Old Testament has been completed in me. All of the commands that were given for your benefit and for your good, I have perfectly accomplished. And He has done in this moment what the people were unable to do for themselves. And in that accomplishment, He's directing us to find our hope, not in our achievement or even our obedience, but in Him. See, that's, that's the answer. To turn from your own moral pursuits and your own self-salvation project and to declare before God your own inability. The Bible's going to call that repentance. That we repent not only from our sin and rejection of God, rightly, but also, again, to quote Martin Luther, to repent from our damnable good works. From the good deeds that we presume purchases our acceptance. And to look to Jesus for what he accomplished on your behalf. Because the one, in fact the only one, who had the power to declare his people free from the cleanliness laws also has the power to declare you free from the burden of your guilt. And he did that through the cross, where he took your place, where he suffered the punishment that we deserved for our rejection, where he felt the guilt that belonged to us. And he did that so that you would be free from that guilt. And perhaps the thought is running through your mind, but Jonathan, you don't understand who I am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the secret things that I do when no one else is around. You don't know the sins that have dominated my heart and my mind for years. You don't know the actions that I've taken. You don't know what's going on in me. How in the world could Jesus actually do this? And we sang the answer earlier. View him prostrate in the garden. On the ground, your maker lies. On the bloody tree, behold him. Sinner, Will this not suffice? Is there anything you can add to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that makes it more powerful? Do you understand that Jesus did this so that you would have the relationship with God that had been severed through our sin? That all of that could be restored and redeemed, and in doing so, Jesus accomplished the means of the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel when he wrote, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That what Jesus accomplished for you in that day was to give you a new heart. To remove the heart that could only do evil continually. The source of all evil. The source of all brokenness. The source of all defilement. That that heart would be pulled out of your proverbial chest. And to use this Old Testament language as that heart of stone is thrown away. A brand new living heart is placed and you're given the Spirit of God Himself. 
And why is the addition of the Spirit so important there? Well, first, because He's the one who gives life. He's the one who gives you the new heart. He's the one who awakens your soul. He's the one who enables you to, to, to respond to what God has called you to. But then also notice the very end, to be careful to obey my rules. The desire for obedience that we have is not a wrong one. We are not pushed to, to abandon what is right and true just because we have grace. But now through the Spirit, we actually have the ability to obey. That you have the Spirit through whom you're able to live in free obedience to the instruction that God gives. And this is why Jesus is able to say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you feel like your spiritual life is a heavy yoke that you are having to pull all on your own, do you understand that you don't have Jesus' yoke on your back? You have piled up, added on, replaced with a morality, a construction, an expectation of your own doing. And Jesus wants to alleviate that burden. Let's consider these things as a congregation, as individuals gifted with new hearts and new lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would convince us of the truth of this text. God, if I had to guess, there's nobody in here who is still trying to obey all the commandments of the Old Testament, who's trying to follow dietary laws and cleanliness instructions. But God, certainly we have replaced those things that you have alleviated from us with our own expectations and our own burdens. So God, we pray that you would pry those things from our hands. Relieve us of the self-salvation project in which we find us, find ourselves. God, we pray that you would point us always to Christ on the cross, realizing that it's in that moment that he took the guilt and the shame and the burden for our sin. And that likewise, in his resurrection, we are provided in a new life and a new heart and we're given the gift of the Spirit. So God, awaken in us what is sleeping. Clarify in our mind's eye the things that are fuzzy and help us to look to you and to you alone for the grace and the forgiveness and the freedom that you give. And it's in your name that we pray, amen.